Hello, and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation Podcasts. Today's episode will be about change management and creating sustainable change, both in business and in the organizational culture. I am delighted to welcome Tim Creasy, Chief Innovation Officer of ProSci. Tim, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Tim, as well as being the Chief Innovation Officer in ProSci, you are also the co-author of the best-selling book, Change Management, The People's Side of Change, a quest we clearly share. And you're also one of the thought leaders in contemporary change management. And I think when people talk about change management, they often automatically use the acronym ADCAR, don't they? And I know <laughs> I know there are other components, of course, to that, but they sort of put together ADCAR and change management. And the ProSci change method is probably one of the most well-known models, I think, in, in the change management sector. But if I just step back a little bit from the models and the and the methodology, for me, the discussion on change and particularly sustainable organizational change has never been as frequent and as relevant, I think, with the onset of digital and now the aftermath of COVID. And But humans don't change their reaction to change, do they? And technology isn't waiting for us to catch up. So can we start there, Tim? How do you yeah. see that? affecting the employee experience in organizations? So one of my favorite keynotes I've been giving is around the conditions of the future of work and change. Mm. And I do it almost like slapstick. It's more like observational Mm. comedy. And I have these 12 conditions that we're all living in that are part of the future we all have to navigate as a result of this three-year collective journey we just made through this global pandemic. One of them is that the people side cannot be unseen. Mm. That pre-pandemic, I could walk past you in the hallway or even sit at a table with you during a project meeting and just, that's just you, Susie, person I'm Mm. just trying to get through this day with. And then all of a sudden, we all went to the what I call the instantaneous remote work experiment, where all work went remote. Not Mm. all work, but most of the work that could. And Mm. now you're in that project meeting with that same person. You're looking into their living room, listening to the symphony of their lives in the background of the update, uh, Mm. this whatever (laughs) update meeting this is, right? Um, There's one of the other conditions I talk about in that talk is this paradoxical infusion of humanity into the organization as a result of this 2D exchange that we all went through. Now, there's a lot of figuring that out going forward as we decide when and where we come together and how we make use of space when we share space. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating time. About 2015, I started to put together a podcast with a buddy called The Rehumanization of the Workplace. About even back in 16, 17, 18, we were watching a lot of these different business trends Mm. and technologies and approaches start to emerge. And the common thread was that they had this re-recognition of the value of each person that made up the organization. Mm. And then I think the pandemic sort of accelerated that given some of the the conditions that uh, same storm, very different boats uh, that we all just kind of navigated, right? Absolutely. But I think, and you can't get away today from, which it's become a buzzword, hasn't it? Human-centered organizations, you know, rehumanizing the workforce. And of course, not that we should be trying to get away from it, but like you say, it's now visible and it's everywhere. And it, it's become an imperative for business in terms of creating those sort of inclusive environments where you can actually say, yeah, I'm scared of that. And somebody will take that on board and you can do something with it. And as a professional like you that's been in this for a while, there's mm. a little bit of a welcome to the party, I think. Yes, right? absolutely. So like, <laughs> yeah. I found a tutorial I wrote in 2003 that was like the human being is the centerpiece of the organization, yeah. of performance, of change. 2003, that's 20 years yeah. ago now. So I do think that there's a part of the shared experience and the conditions we're in now have really elevated the importance of what 
folks like you and I have been doing for several mm. decades now, right? Mm. Which brings me to like, I often hear this question of do change management models really work? And if yeah. I take that as a backdrop, so we've been doing this since 2003 going, hey, people are important. Hey, you need to listen to people. And, you know, 20 years later, we're still doing that. So I think there is a real question of do change management models work? And if so, why? Yeah. And I'll give you a couple of thoughts here. The very first is a quote from George E.P. Box, a British statistician. And the quote is, all models are wrong, but some are useful. I like that. All models are wrong, but some are useful. Yeah. And so I like that how you phrase the question is, why do they really work? Not are they right? Mm. Because all models are wrong, but some of them help us get closer to what it means to be successful on this particular change, right? Mm-hmm. And nothing mm-hmm. is a guarantee at all. But no, when we clearly. better understand the moving parts of the, uh, I'm sort of a math geek. So I think about it as kind of an algebra equation. Okay. Uh, and if successful change is on the other side of the equal sign, what are the different variables that move us closer to mm-hmm. or farther away from successful change? Jeff Hyatt, our founder, ProSize mm. founder, began doing research years ago that says, this project succeeded, this one didn't. What was different? About Why not? Yeah. And I'll tell you what, back in 1997, when they started doing the very first research, this is before I joined them even, mm. the human side of change was that biggest identified gap between the projects that were successful and those that and weren't. And so, <laughs> absolutely, right? So to me, Susie, it's not oh, here's the right answer. Let's mm. go make sure everybody has the right answer. It's, we know that there's a bunch of moving parts and the better we tend to prepare, equip, and supporting our people through the changes they're going through, the more effective we'll, we'll be. Mm. The other thing about the pro side change management models is that we're continually mm. evolving them with the research that we're doing. Right. Mm. So we just did two huge research efforts, one on top contributors to change success in the post-pandemic world, and then the 25th anniversary of best practices and change management and the learnings that are coming out of that research that, you know, people, your, your listeners can access, mm. right? There's dynamic dashboards that they can go access right now um, to start to bring the lessons learned of practitioners right now to life mm. into the work that they're doing. So, And, and that's, that's, the heart of change management is it isn't it it's expecting the unexpected and what i'm hearing in your algebraic formula which i started to really concentrate on what you're saying because i don't consider myself a math <laughs> but is actually about curiosity and it's about getting curious about what what fits together and what doesn't fit together and it's a great i've read i've read both those pieces of research and i love the fact that your um models evolve because context does People do, but context evolves more quickly than than people, of course. And I was going to ask you, what is the aftermath of COVID? What is the effect of COVID that you're seeing, uh, Tim, on change management in general? Yeah, great question. So I think we begin with what's the impact on the organizations Mm. in which all this change is happening? Yeah where change management is being applied. So I think you have, I've got some fun articles on LinkedIn about sort of new, first of all, we have new capabilities in organizations. Mm. New capabilities and new expectations that both have emerged. Right before the pandemic, ProSci had never delivered a virtual three-day program. Yeah, We were all in person. And I was the person that led the portfolio. And I said, over my dead body, will we move to a it virtual environment? No. <laughs> we used flip charts all over. Yeah. We did treasure yeah. hunts. There was <laughs> singing, right? Like, And so it's funny. I came across a document from March 2020 where we said... Here's our plan to virtualize the three-day. And in six weeks, when this thing's over, we're going to roll it back. 
And here's our plan for rolling it back. Uh, that safety we thing. Had, <laughs> as a team, we had a plan to get back in person mm. after six weeks when mm. COVID was going to be over, right? Mm. Now, three years later, we've developed so many digital capabilities around virtual facilitation, you know, mm. co-creation across the globe. Those are all capabilities we can't give up. You can't undo those capabilities. So ProSci going forward has to incorporate mm. those capabilities. Mm. And it's uh, a skill new... set, isn't it, Tim? Like yeah. a facilitator, being a facilitator in a room is very different, isn't it, from being a facilitator on screen? Absolutely, right? You lose shared, uh, the, the, the context that shared mm. space gives you, you lose. And so yeah. you start to come up with proxies to create those connections. Can I tell you a quick story about this? Yeah, please do. Um, <laughs> so I was teaching a one-day program about agile and change management. You know, we did a research effort back a couple of years ago. This was May, a couple months into the pandemic. So everyone is full on lockdown. Mm. One day program about agile and change management for an in-home healthcare provider network that's across the States. Most of them were based in the Midwest. So pre-pandemic, I would have flown out there. We would have been in some hotel conference room, right? Instead, we are all in little squares on Zoom. (laughs) And we had realized that first breaks are important. And secondly, we can use breaks to bring humanity into this 2D engagement. And so our producers of our programs would give attendees assignments like, go find your uh, gadget in your kitchen you can't live without. What was the last thing that Amazon delivered to you, right? And everybody would bring those and show Mm. those as you came back from break. Mm. One of the fun ones we did was, what's your crazy hat? Come back in a crazy hat. Crazy hat. Crazy hat. Now, as a facilitator, this is great because it's visual, which of means course. if I'm if I'm behind on this schedule, I can be like, cool <laughs> hats, let's go to the next <laughs> yeah. But I had plenty of time this day. And so I said, okay, let's do a contest. Let's vote. And I still remember to this day, number three was a gentleman wearing a huge sombrero. Uh, his name was John. Number two was a woman named Ella. She was wearing a, it was a fascinator. It's a hat that they wear during the Kentucky Derby yeah. here in the United okay. States. Number one was a gentleman also named Tim, and he had a unicorn tiara that his seven-year-old daughter was getting adjusted perfectly so that he looked great in this hat, right? And so the whole class is like, Tim wins, oh, the unicorn horn, the unicorn horn, right? And I, Susie, am very, very, very rarely at a loss for words. (laughs) And I sat there, I just sat back thinking, oh my gosh, right? We're talking about how do you align ad card iterations and sprints? How do you decomprise the plans of change management, make them bite size? And we're celebrating this guy's unicorn horn. Like what a wild (laughs) amount of humanity that's taking place in Mm. in this classroom. So Mm. yeah, facilitating virtually, facilitating in this whole new space is... uh, Mm different Mm. skill sets and different things we have to bring into the Mm. equation. But it's a great example, Tim, and I know we share uh, this sort of thought on leadership is about creating the conditions, isn't it? And that's what you're doing there. You're you're creating the conditions for the magic to happen or for something different and more humane to happen. And I think that that's also part of agile. And I know it's also become a buzzword, like, you know, it's Kanbans and it's scrums. Yes, it is. It's also a lot more. And I would love it if you could just tell us a little bit more about how ADCAR and Agile fit together. Because for me, ADCAR brings what Agile needs if you don't do the Agile manifesto and you just do the Agile tools. But I'm really interested to find out how it fits together for you and how you actually use it in the field. Yeah, so I think I'd begin one step back 
about the notion between lowercase a agile and uppercase yes. a agile, yeah. right? Yeah. The lowercase a agile is an attribute of tenacity, flexibility, durability. Yeah. Uppercase ad, a agile is a structured approach to iteratively develop something so that when we get to the end, what we deliver most closely aligns with what the mm. people we created it for really need. And so I do think those are kind of two different worlds, but we know that notion of it breaking down iterative change, the big A agile. There's actually a great YouTube video called Aligning Adcar, Aligning Change Management to the Pace and Cadence of, of Agile. Okay. But when we take something like Adcar, mm. the way I used to do this, I'd do it on a flip chart and draw a line okay. in the middle and flip up or down, initiative or sprint, or you know, mm. initiative or release, let's say. Yeah. Awareness of the need for this big change that's, that we're undertaking. Is that initiative mm. level or is it a release level? Okay. Awareness tends to be release uh, yes. or initiative level, right? Mm. We're redesigning this big, this thing. Mm. Desire to participate tends to mostly be at the initiative level, but we also get desire that we need to show up in each of the re- releases as we mm. engage people. Knowledge on how to make the change. That tends to be really release oriented. Mm. You know, what's the knowledge to execute on this particular piece of mm. functionality? Ability tends to drop into the release piece. Okay. And then we tend to split reinforcement sort of across both. Mm. So we end up doing awareness, desire, reinforcement, planning at the initiative level. And each sprint, we do desire, knowledge, ability, desire, knowledge, ability, desire, knowledge, ability. Mm. And that's sort of how folks will start to break ADCAR at that individual. Because ADCAR describes the way we do the technical side of the coin, yes. right? We yeah. talk about change of yeah. people side and technical side mm. of the coin. Agile is a technical way, and you know about a third of the attendees of my open enrollment programs are bringing agile projects. So we're having a huge, you know, that's the folks are bringing coming mm. to change management because I think you highlighted it right. It's easy to forget about the people side of change yeah. when we step into yeah. an approach that inherently gets us closer to the user, and it's necessary but not sufficient. Uh, and mm. change management brings, I think, some of that orientation towards that. Mm people side on how we're going to mm. help the individuals who experience this change. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it bring it feels safer, doesn't it though, Tim, because it brings a tangible framework and it, and it, you can make it quite left-brained and solely left-brained if you want to. I'm interested in, um, in how it can transition into creating the conditions because ADCAR, like Agile, can also do lots of improvement and change things, but without necessarily creating sustainable change, I feel, because people only do those behaviors when they're in design sprint, or they only do those behaviors when they're in a retrospective, or they do a daily stand-up, but it's just for those 15 minutes. <laughs> so that type of thing. And do you think post-COVID that people are more sensitive to creating the conditions? Or do you think that they're ju- we were just in so much uncertainty in this imposed change experiment that the world imposed on us that we're just grasping at straws to get back into frameworks? I think that context is critical. Mm. And I think we saw it in this latest round of research that we did, 12th edition of the best mm. practices in change management. I'm actually doing, I was doing analysis on this just yesterday. Okay. Since 2013, we've asked the question, what are the biggest trends that you see mm-hmm. in the discipline of change management in the next five years? So I've got 2013, 15, 17, 19, and 23 data on that question. So I'm starting to look at how they kind of all come together. The interesting thing is the two at the top. Number one is more emphasis on the human side of change, of the human side of change, no matter not 
more structures, more models, yeah. more tools, just more emphasis on the people that are now, we always called them our most important asset. And then after the pandemic, the mm. great resignation, all of these things, I think we're starting to see that treatment of them as our most important mm. asset. The mm. second was aligning change management into the strategy and culture of the organization. So I think you're talking about kind of two different things. One is the sustainment of the mindset yeah. that people are a central, the, the central variable in the performance of the organization and in the execution of change. And mm. then the other ad car is kind of in a when we're adopting new functionality in our team's environment, the R in ADCAR is reinforcement, right? I make yes. the joke that ProSci would be a failure if Jeff invented the ADCA model instead of the <laughs> ADCAR model, right? And so in specific times mm. of change, it's how do we intentionally support the sustainment and, and the mm. stickiness of this change? Mm. Um, but I think organizationally, it's how do we create that longer-term mindset uh, that really elevates the importance of people. Mm. Yeah, because if I, um, if I look at the shifts that are happening in organizational design and, of course, just ways of working with the whole sort of ecosystem, more connected, networked ways of working, I have personally three tenants that I see just changing. And the first shift is like the shift, I call it, from ego to eco. So the shift from I to we and the fact that all systems and processes today are built in organizations are built on individual performance reviews and individual objectives. And we're asking them to to get, you know, to do more than just define collective objectives we're asking them to do collective change which you know you state in your book that organizational outcomes are the collective result of individual change so you know how do we get to that eco system and eco leadership and i think the second thing that i'm seeing is the learn and learn relearn thing this need for agility mental agility emotional agility we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow now as change managers we're quite used to that not that one ever really gets comfortable, but we're more comfortable with being uncomfortable, let's put it that way. And then, and then like sort of the human reactions to change, which are coming to the fore. And when people say we need to put more emphasis on the human side of change, my definition, and that's my bias, is that we're talking about understanding human reactions to change. So I don't know what your thoughts are around what this brings to organizational change, Tim, but also to the change management models and the way they're used. Yeah. So I think. Uh, if I were to go look, kind of look at each mm. of the three, to me, the shift from I to we is a particular change that some mm. organizations are working to undertake, right? Like that is a mindset shift, a shift in the way the mm. organization and people show up. It's one that ProSci is taking on, right? This okay. we over me uh, yeah. is how we phrase yeah. it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but it showed up in uh, the way we identified and built out our impact value, which is the okay. first of the values campaign. Yes. Okay. That we're working on right now. So I think that's the, you know, some organizations are, others not, I don't think are, but a lot of organizations are trying to bring this kind of collective mm. view. And what's and, been the reaction to that, Tim, in ProSci? You know, have people been on board straight away, a little bit reticent, or are we just getting the normal spread that we see of human um, You kind of get that normal spread of, yeah. I think we've laid a bit of foundation. So, okay. uh, you know, several years ago, we did a really, uh, we did an interesting campaign around ProSci 50, My 50. That okay, the creation of yeah. our experience mm. is we're all part of creating the experience that we're all part of creating, right? Yeah. And so it was really a bringing together of the we and the me, mm. saying that we each are bringing um, kind of 50 to the table. So right. 
Learn, unlearn, relearn. You know, uh, Alvin Toffler, I'm yeah. sure American businessman, futurist, right? The illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, yeah, relearn. I love that quote. Um, yeah. And so I think, you know, learning is change, change is learning uh, is mm. a keynote that I've taken uh, to a number of different uh, conferences when the audience is the training and development mm. and learning folks. And so, yeah, to me, this is really an extension of sort of the growth mindset work into what mm. does it actually mean? Mm. It means creating learning paths for folks and opportunities to continue down that path. Um, mm. Laura McGann, our head of people at uh, ProSci, has done a great job of bringing this kind of an orientation towards the way we view skills and capabilities in the organization above and beyond jobs, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You are not your job cycle. <laughs> exactly. And, and that's yeah. how it's manifesting organizationally. Mm. And I think human reaction to change and complexity, I'm like, yeah, that, that's the backdrop. Mm. Right. Where Adcar came from was Jeff yeah. asking the question, why does a person need react this way at this point in time? Like mm. it, it, it really began with how do I understand the human reaction to change and model a way to help somebody through mm. the sequential questions that we tend to, not that we all always go through, but that we tend to go through mm. when we get exposed to something new. So mm. now, like we talked about earlier, that human reaction to change became much more apparent when the people side can no longer be unseen mm. after what we all went through. So It's interesting though, isn't it? I mean, my bias is that you would be good at that, you collectively, because that's what ProSci does, whether that's right or wrong, you know, that that's what you do, that's that's your expertise. But do you still have these two sort of cultures that you need to sustain? One sort of business as usual from 20 years ago and one sort of we need to explore, we need to innovate, we need to think differently. And if so, you know, what are your change management? I was going to say recommendations, yes, but also experience on making, creating conditions, we're back to that, so that cultures can coexist. Yeah, I think it's an interesting on the back end of the pandemic, right? Yeah. We uh, Early in the pandemic, we put together a return to the workplace advisory board. So we brought oh, okay. strategic change leaders from all different industries. I had about 15 that were coming monthly. And we had no idea what was it was a fascinating time, right? Yeah. To bring leaders together because you had no idea what was even happening. Mm. Mm. Something could happen on the day before the meeting that changes everybody's plan in terms mm. of what's going on. Mm. And one of the gentlemen on that board offered up some wisdom that stuck with stuck with me, you know, even to today. He said, "Crisis can be the catalyst for the change, but it cannot be the reason for sustained change." Yeah. Right. So it can yeah. cause us to do a bunch of stuff initially to kind of respond to it, but it's not going to be the actual foundation upon which sustained change lasts mm -hmm. and we start to see regression back right we flex muscles demonstrate capabilities demonstrate new mindsets but then we there's this natural human tendency to go back to what mm -hmm. was and so i think you're right that there's got to be true intention to keep in place some of those capabilities the innovation that took place over the last three years so we can mm -hmm. make sure we don't regress back to, to the way things always were right mm -hmm. I make the joke, TTWWADI. That's the way we always did it. Uh, uh, just trying to work know, out. TTWWADI. Yeah. That's the way we've always done it. Uh, and I used to, I did that as a punchline after we came out of the pandemic, right? Because think about the things we did over the last year that we would have told you were impossible mm. prior yeah. to the pandemic. And then we made them happen. But how do we not lose traction there? Mm. 
In terms of like business as usual and innovation, I sometimes think about them more as two systems, not necessarily two cultures. Because in the end, it's the it tends to be the same individuals that are doing their you know that are working within those two yeah. systems that have some of their job where they're doing this, and they're also supporting projects over here, mm-hmm. trying to bring about the, the new that. And so, mm-hmm. to me, you know, helping people understand these two operating systems that are existing within the organization that they mm-hmm. have different to what ends, they have different trade offs. They operate differently, but both of them are helping us as an organization be who we want to be mm. in mm. 2030 or what, however far out we've, we've set that anchor. It brings um, me back to the idea of catalysts. We were talking before the show about catalysts and that title, um, but they are essentially bridging the two systems, aren't they? And catalyzing what one needs and what, and what the other needs and trying to sort of bring understanding to each part of that system. Yeah, but from what I see in organizations and what from what I've lived in organizations, these people, let's call them catalysts because that's that's our favorite word. <laughs> these catalysts are few and far between. So it's good to watch and they get some great results, but it's not enough to create two sustainable systems where you have enough catalysts to outweigh the antibodies, the corporate antibodies of business as usual. What's your thoughts on that? Do you think that the innovation runs the way you teed it up? It sounds like the innovation system is like if there's antibodies in the business as usual, then kind of the, the there, therefore we would assume that the innovation system is running counter to the business as usual, or it feels like business as usual feels like it needs to be defended against the innovation. Yes, I more, think so, more so that. that's the, yeah, more so so that, think, not, yeah. We've kind of messed up already then, right? If we, if we yeah. haven't got them aligned yet, yeah. if business as usual is feeling mm. threatened by mm. innovation, we need to have set the table better ahead of time to show that innovation is here to support mm. the business and mm-hmm. getting to who it's going to mm. be, helping mm. business as usual evolve towards like, I, I, I mean, to me, there's a really, it's much more of a demonstrating the alignment and convergence of mm. uh, that there's a shared purpose farther out in the future we may mm. not share it today and it may feel like tension and contention today mm. but in the end there's a shared so maybe that's kind of the the notion that business as usual views innovation and i wonder if mostly the innovation people hold that as a bias it's almost mean, like a yeah, yeah it's almost yeah. like a bias like victimhood like oh no we have to go in strong with our armor up because business as usual is there mm. to kind of squat <laughs> us down. You know, I, I see this yeah. a little bit in some of the mm. kind of more, uh, mm. it's interesting to think about how much of that is manifested. Uh, yeah. And how much is inbuilt bias into a, into a systemic memory yeah. of business as usual and innovation. But it brings me back yeah. to what you said earlier about intentionality of, you know, of how you set up what you set up in, in ProSci and what ProSci methodology does for us around intentionality from the top on wanting to create sustainable change explaining what the change is you know the what's in it for me why are we doing this and it brings me to the sort of c-suite level and change management it's always been this sort of love-hate relationship in my experience of we need to talk about it we need to do it but then it gets a little bit difficult so in terms of implementation that's often a sticking point for me is the sort of senior c-suite and the ceos who are supporting the change on a piece of paper and talking about it as well. But there's often a gap. And I don't know what your experience and recommendations would be there, Tim, for sort of senior levels of an organization intentionally supporting the change so that it becomes sustainable. 
Yeah. So we, in the pro side methodology, we read, get in, there's a whole piece in the mm. process around activation mm. of roles and how mm. do we take, think about our sponsors as going through a change themselves mm. and awareness of the need to be a good sponsor, desire to participate in, and support mm. the being a good sponsor. And that's where we usually get the head nod. Okay. <laughs> Knowledge on how to be a good sponsor, ability to step in and execute mm. is usually where we, you know, passive support versus active support. Do you have a piece of paper in front of you? I do. All right. I'll have all your listeners as well. Oh, not the ones that are driving, but the ones that are sitting. <laughs> the ones that are uh, sitting watching. Yeah. Yeah. Make yourself a two by two. Okay. For the rows, we'll put sponsor on the top, catalyst on the bottom. Okay. For the vertical columns, we'll put have on the ver- first column and don't have on the second column. Okay. Sponsors tend to have influence, authority, resources, that long-term view of where we're going, right? Mm -hmm. Sponsors tend not to have the time to figure out exactly what they need to do on this change, the pulse necessarily of the people in the organization, Mm. the expertise around human systems and human complexity and some of the things we talked about already, right? Yeah. Now let's drop down to the bottom row. What do catalysts have? The charge to focus on the people side of change, the expertise and experience in human systems, human complexity, the tools, the methodology, the frameworks, the structure to address the people side. What do the catalysts not have? Resources, authority, organizational influence broadly across where we need mm. to make the change. Look what you just made, right? All the stuff the sponsors have, the stuff in your upper left matches the stuff in the bottom right. The stuff in the upper right matches the stuff in the bottom left. Like to me, this is the mm. symbiotic relationship that we need to forge when we uh, we create that partnership with the sponsor is to demonstrate for them what they bring, but what they don't have and what we need to, what we're there to bring uh, for them. So what, yeah. our latest round of research shows that 50% of sponsors have less than an adequate understanding of what it means to effectively sponsor a change efforts, mm. to actively and visibly participate, to build mm. coalitions, to communicate directly. So they, uh, you know, can, it's kind of head nod support, like a bobblehead. But we are we need to be there as the catalyst to help give them that that coaching mm. that direction. Yeah, and we're their eyes and ears, aren't they? Aren't we on the operational on the operational floor for what's going on and the Absolutely. pulse as you called it? Yeah, yeah. So that's a big so I'm hearing that's a big part of the foundational discussion around intentionality is naming the catalysts or identifying catalysts from that skill set and making sure that they're connected to the sponsors. Absolutely. Uh, I'll give you one more piece of the intentionality that kind of circles back to something we had talked about earlier, the notion of resourcing and planning for sustainment of the change effort, that we are resourcing and planning ahead of time for what we're going to do to sustain outcomes. And in the latest round of research, we see a direct correlation between whether or not we planned for sustainment and whether we met objectives, Mm. whether or not we resourced for it, whether or not we met objectives. And one of the things we've been doing in the methodology lately is talking about, we map three points on the project timeline just to start the discussion. Mm. Kickoff, go live, and outcomes. 
because you know we've always seen kickoff go live. Mm, I was going to say I'm go smiling live. at the outcomes part. <laughs> we put that third milestone out there, and we draw it like a milestone diamond, and we call it outcomes. And somebody says, "Oh, I'm not sure when that's going to happen." And we say, "That's okay. Let's start having a conversation about when it's going to happen because it's not happening right now, right?" Mm-hmm. Um, and so that gap, that time to sustained outcomes between go live and outcomes becomes a fascinating conversation point, uh, mm. even at the beginning of the initiative. Yeah. Which means that people need those skill sets along with systems thinking so that they can actually look at the outcomes and anticipate what they might be and how they can iterate on them. And how we might get to them. Yeah. 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 As opposed to just, we've got a bit of budget left. Should we do change management? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, time is running, but I do want to just uh, briefly touch on and I'm saying briefly because it's a huge subject, tech and the future of work, and particularly AI. Not because ChatGPT has just come out and everything, but we know that this is going to come exceedingly quickly and it's growing in capacity. And we don't know. <laughs> We're back in the uncertain sort of let's get curious about what it might bring because we don't know, do we? And I know you recently wrote about this. Can you give us some insight into what that relationship might look like, Tim, for you between AI and change? Yeah, so and I begin this with I am not at all an AI expert at all, nor do I see into the future. So this is my best <laughs> yeah. read, having been yeah. kind of an observant student of change and the nature of change mm. and paying attention to what's going on in the, the space. So yeah, I think there's kind of three layers that we think about. So mm. AI and change, AI and change management, and then AI and the practitioner, the change catalyst. Mm. Mm. So at the organizational level, I think we've got this kind of, I talked about layers of disruption. Mm. So disruption to job. And that's where I think you hear a lot of the concern, like, oh, it's going to make entire jobs just go away. I think there's a better way to think about that, which is that second layer of disruption, task disruption. Mm. What tasks are, you know, going to be impacted? How are they going to be impacted? Those that you know are heavily language focused might are yeah. going to be impacted very differently than than mm. others. Organizational impact. So, where in organizations are we going to see opportunities for both growth, growth and efficiency gains? And then I do think industry is kind of the highest level, right? How yeah. uh, there are particular industries in and of themselves that'll be shifted more than others. Uh, manufacturing and agriculture has already sort of gone through an automation Mm. evolution, Mm. you know? And so I think there's some interesting lessons, you know, I think it's the other industries that are going to start to go through some of that parallel Mm. automation change. The change management discipline itself, I think there's going to be a lot of demand because there's a lot of impact on the people side of organizations, even as they bring AI into the way they do their work. I'm leading mm-hmm. an AI tiger team at ProSci. And later okay. today, I'll be speaking to a whole team of our managers uh, okay. about, about AI and you know how we're going to step into it as an organization. So I think oh, my, my personal kind of reflections is it's going to give us, it gives us better starting points. It offers quicker sense making, and there's the notion of sample size. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, like give me five different ways to look and start this parag- paragraph versus one. Mm. Uh, my favorite take so far on um, AI that I've heard is Rick Rubin. You know, music producer Rick Rubin, no. a famous American music producer. He produced the Beastie Boys' first album uh, right, okay. back in the day, and. Mm. Adele and Ed Sheeran and Johnny Cash, all kinds of famous musicians. But 
he said he compared it to being a hip hop music art uh, producer doing a crate dive where you go look mm. for music. So you're just popping in tape after tape after tape after tape listening to different artists. And mm-hmm. he said, you're not looking for the next big artist or the next big song. You're looking for a moment. Mm. And so I think to me, that's what sort of generative AI starts to provide is those moments that we can start to incorporate into, uh, into the work we do. So. Mm. Which brings me back to, I was just thinking of moments that matter and, you know, just generating experience, if you like which brings me back to what keeps us human as opposed to what AI is doing and the slightly different skill sets we're going to need as leaders, but also as humans in organizations around sense-making. So sort of storytelling and empathy and courageous conversations. And what does that mean for change management methods in your view, um, Tim? Because we're back to your book, aren't we? The people side of change. (laughs) You know, what does that mean that we have to, upskill people uniquely just for that or do you think it should be integrated into the me- the methodologies or what's your view on that oh uh, in terms of storytelling and and sort of conversation and yeah, yeah multiple perspectives and things that um that keep us human in my you know imagination i was going to say creativity but ai's got quite a lot of that so but you get you get what i mean the, the things that ai cannot do today yeah, I think that is part of kind of these continued, you know, rehumanization mm. of the workplace, mm. right? Is to continue figuring out what are those skill sets, uh, capabilities that are going to help people be most successful. Collaboration, right? Mm. Um, yeah, I think there's those become just a more crucial skill sets for for mm. people to. Uh, the interesting, you know, a little thought on conversation, right? Mm. Uh, the notion of conversation. I think it's one of the interesting things about ChatGPT mm. is that it takes access to data back to a conversational unit. Yes. Whereas for a while now, in order to access all of this zeros and ones, all this mm. information that's out there, you had to have real strong understanding of syntax and how to go about finding yeah, the where it was. And, yeah. And so conversation is the first way human beings exchange information. Then all of a sudden information gets digitized and you have to use mouse and command prompts and all this stuff to get that information. Mm. But now we're getting back to a place where conversation gives you a way to access that vast amount of information. So I think there's a kind of an interesting evolution evolution there. But Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see how that works in parallel, won't it, as, as tech moves on how we adapt which is exactly what you're doing with your research and you know how we adapt our internal mental models as well as the models we use in the workplace okay tim time is running would you have a final recommendation call to action or words of wisdom for uh, our listeners around creating sustainable change in their either teams or organizations yeah i think uh, kind of two thoughts one is sort of the base beat that i brought forward after being on a lot of different podcasts of a lot, most of them not about change, about other kind of topics. Mm -hmm. And that's the idea that change is hard, change is continuous, but change success is accessible with and through our people. And so I think that's my first takeaway is that it is with and through our people that will always, uh, that's the path to successful Mm -hmm. change and effective Mm -hmm. organizations. How do we continue to kind of bring that to to the beginning, to to, to the forefront? Mm -hmm. So my other thought would be uh, start at the start, you know, why, why now, what if we don't, why this instead of that is always the, 
the very first spark, uh, whether it's people embracing a new mindset, learning a new skill, engaging in a new technology. Mm. It's always around helping that person understand why, why now, what if we don't, why this instead of that, mm. to get that very first step. So, Thank you. Often what we tell ourselves is obvious when it's clearly not. <laughs> because we've been living it for the yeah. last two years, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, finally, now yeah. we're bringing it forward. Uh, there's some interesting time travel that change catalysts mm. do, right? Senior leaders live in the future. The project team lives in the transition. And the people we're going to help bring forward live in the current state. So how do we time travel across uh, those states of change? So Yeah, that's a great pitch for a story for any of our change catalysts listening, for if they want to create a story in their organization. Tim, thanks so much for coming and sharing your insight, your research, your experience. Um, where can people find out more about you and what you do? Yeah, so the very first place would be the ProSci website, prosci.com. There's loads of blogs, tutorials, days worth of webinar replays, <laughs> as well as live webinars. ProSci also has a really nice YouTube channel with a lot mm-hmm. of web webinar shorts and what we call Tim Talks, which are fun little three to five minute videos. And then I'm most active on LinkedIn. uh, And that's where you're going to find the articles and uh, the the thinking I'm doing right now. So Excellent. Thank you. And and I definitely would invite our listeners to go and listen to the Tim Talks. They're full of nuggets. So thanks for a great conversation, Tim. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Susie. Have a great rest of the day. Yeah. Thanks. You too. We hope you enjoyed this episode and the insights and learning it gave you. And it's bye from me for now and see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation.